everyone, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast. I'm Travis Walser, and I'm here with Ethan Jago, as always, to discuss interesting topics about Scripture and the Christian life that young adults face uh, just as they go about life. Ethan, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, man. It is a, a good day. We had a good soccer game last night for my Ooh, son. Nice. He scored three goals. So definitely a proud father. So I introduced him what the term hat trick meant. Ooh. Uh, so yeah, it was, nice. it was fun. Yeah. I know very little about soccer, but me and my wife are both like major hockey fans. Ooh. So like, I really look forward to like. Who's your team? Oh, that's a hard one. Okay. I really like the penguins mostly okay. because like I'm a, I'm a huge Mario Lemieux fan from like way back in the day. Uh, but my wife is a Flyers fan. So, okay, like, me and I your wife are of the same mind. So I, I love the Flyers. Yeah, I love the Flyers too. So like I'm just like okay, yeah, dude. So yeah. I was a huge Philadelphia fan because I lived in Philly for a bit. I know, and that. I was a huge Flyers fan. But I ended up stopping right around 2015 or so. We kept making it to the Stanley Cup, and we kept choking. I'm like, I can't yep. do this anymore. I've got to stop. And like my wife gifted me, it was like, a, it was a great Christmas present. She bought me tickets and we were able to actually see the Flyers play in person well before all this COVID stuff. And so that was awesome. But yeah, I don't watch Flyers anymore. I don't watch hockey anymore just because yeah. it's, it's depressing for me to see. That's Aww. every Philadelphia, <laughs> except, you know, the, uh, the Eagles won the Super Bowl not too long ago, but like every other team just lets you down the Phillies, the Sixers. It's yeah. just like, ugh, I just can't do it anymore. I have friends who are like huge Kings fans, and okay. I'm just like, they just make me <laughs> want to beat my head into a wall like when they talk because I'm just like, oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome yeah. that your wife yeah, – me and your wife – is your wife from that area? Why is she like the Flyers? Uh, so she lived in Virginia for a little while, but she's always – Not she's, a Capitals fan then? No. Huh. No, not a Capitals fan. She's always been – since she was younger, her dad loves hockey too. Yeah. And he's always been a Flyers fan too, so. You know, I yeah. I wonder how many people in Pensacola actually are hockey fans. I know we got the Pensacola Ice Flyers, which is a yeah. great time. Yeah. But uh, down south, I don't think you really run into a lot of hockey fans. It's not football really. and baseball down here. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's you're the oddball if your your kid plays soccer. Not necessarily the oddball, but it's not as popular as baseball and no. football and. I had a short stint when I was younger where I played roller hockey, which Ooh. like yeah. Well, we grew up through the era of Mighty Ducks, by the way. Yes. Speaking which of are which, back. did you see that? I did on Disney Plus. We've been watching it. It's really good. So we started <laughs> my kids because I introduced my kids to the Mighty Ducks and they loved it. And then after mm-hmm. D three, my kids were like, Dad is there no more Mighty Ducks? I'm like, no, I don't think they're ever going to make one again. And then the show came out. I'm like, guys, this is not going to be any good. So we started watching it. And then Gordon Bombay pops in there. Uh I'm like, I hope he's still Gordon Bombay. And he is. And he's disgruntled as ever. And I've only watched episode one. We haven't moved on yet. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. We're caught up now. And it's so good. (laughs) We watch it every Friday when the new episode comes out. So I'm just like, yeah. I love it because it takes it back to like – Gordon Bombay, like in D1, right? Like yes. he, he was like a bad guy, didn't want to do anything with good community service and stuff like that. But now we see Gordon Bombay after his, I'm assuming, a horrific pro career that he never really had. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's a disgruntled guy again. But here's what's funny about this. This is way off topic, but this is interesting. Yeah. When I was rewatching Mighty Ducks, the first one, Mighty Ducks, for those of you listening, if you've never watched Mighty Ducks, you've got to watch the Mighty Ducks. Yes. Okay, here's the question. Growing up as a kid, you thought that Gordon Bombay was hot stuff because he was in the Pee Wees. Oh, yeah. 
But realistically, now let's think about this. Like it was the peewees. Yeah. Like no one's like as a pro. Like they showed some pro uh, hockey players. Like oh man, he was legit. In the, his, his triple deke in the peewees. You know this and that. And you're like, he was in the peewees. No professional baseball players. Like man, did you watch Travis hit that softball right. when he was in six? You know, six years old. Right. And so it's funny. Like he was this great hot shot in the peewees, and then that was it. Yeah. And then he stopped after age, what, 10? Yeah. In my opinion, if you haven't picked up hockey stick or skates from 10 until, let's just say he was, I'll be generous, 32, 33. Yeah. So 20 years, some gap, you're not going to be some incredible dude out on the ice. No. Nor do you think you can coach on the ice. Right. So it's so funny. The whole premise behind Mighty Ducks is that he was this awesome peewee. And then after Mighty Ducks, he tries out for a semi-pro team. And then he picks up by the pro team. I'm like, yeah. Really? Like yep. you didn't play anything else from the age of ten till thirty some. Yeah. You just coach. So just because you coach, I don't. Know. It it just it debunked a lot of like my growing oh, yeah. up as a kid watching this stuff. I'm like, this is kind of silly. So I don't know if you've ever looked at like the ice, the Pensacola Ice Flyers like roster, uh-uh. but most of their players, I mean, all their players are walk on tryouts. But most of them are from Canada. Of course, yeah. And I mean, they're they're just like their whole lineup is like like if you look These at like where crazy they're long from, French names and like, yeah, yeah. Like if you look at where they're from though, it's like just places all around Canada, like uh, Toronto and other places Saskatchewan, like that. And you're like, and yeah. oh okay, like yeah, these dudes just come down from Canada to play semi pro hockey, and then they go. But dude, pro. They, they they're born and they're given a set of hockey oh, skates yeah. and a stick, you know. Yeah, yeah. But like a lot of the Flyers players were from Canada too. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's oh, yeah. so many different things. But yeah. anyway, that that's kind of, I guess, an icebreaker for getting into our podcast. But yes, yes I, which has nothing to do with hockey. <laughs> that was hilarious, though, that we both discovered this new Mighty Duck series. Yes. Which is funny, too. My wife was so excited. Yeah. So, like, it, but yeah. My yeah. kids were ecstatic, and it's been torture for them to not continue to watch it. Yes. So, Friday nights is like our family pizza night, and like we get together nice. and watch a show or something. Nice. And so, we're watching that every Friday night, even though there's more episodes out. I'm like, no, we got to wait till Friday and then we'll watch it on Friday. Because otherwise yep. it's like us scrolling on Netflix. Like, all right, what are we going to watch as a family tonight? Yeah. And then we end yeah. up watching Frozen or something else. One of my younger daughters watch that we'll watch for like the 30th time. My son will watch Frozen any time of the day. I can day only let it go so much, Travis. <laughs> 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 oh, man. All right. So what do we got for today, brother? Well, we're going to head into the unknown. Uh <laughs> uh, here we, we can, go. We can do puns all day long <laughs> with Frozen, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Oh, one day when I'm older. Uh, all right, here we go. How can we discern what's normative and descriptive in Scripture, and how can we tell what applies to us today? That's our question. Okay. I like that. Obviously, I don't think there'll be an episode, though, where I jump on here and I'm like, ooh, I don't like that question. That's stupid. Let's move on to the next one. There are no stupid questions when it comes to this, I've learned. Like, yeah. just if you have a question, it's a question, and yeah. every question is really like – well, and every question is relevant. Uh, some may be easier to answer. Some may be a bit more difficult. But so this question really is important because I see a lot of problems with this on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm about to get into the why behind this. But what it is, is this comes down to a term called hermeneutics. Uh, if you've never heard that term, don't be scared by it. All that the term is, it's a, it's a scientific approach to interpreting scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you hear the term hermeneutics, all that we're saying is the process in which one reads scripture and interprets the scripture. It's no different than when you're going through your English class and you're going through your literary uh, courses and you're reading these books and you're understanding what this book was and what that book was and everything else. So when we approach the scriptures though, we've got to take this, in my opinion, 
way more serious because we are dealing with our eternality and our salvation and everything else. So there are formal rules for studying the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's certain fallacies that people can fall into and problems and pitfalls and traps that people fall into as well. Um, The objective, though, of hermeneutics, for those listening, is to allow the text to speak rather than reading into the text what we think or feel. So the goal of the Christian and the goal of the serious student of the Bible, which every Christian should be, all right? Uh, Everyone should be a theologian, meaning studying after God. Everyone should be a theologian, not just for the pastors or whomever. Everyone should be studying theology and everyone should be studying the Bible. So you have exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means I read the text as objectively as I can, understanding certain criteria within that text, and then I extract exegete. Exe means pull out of the text and interpret that. Eisegesis means I read into the text. I'm not pulling out. I'm putting in my own opinion, my own thoughts, my own fill in the blank with whatever about what that text is saying. Does Mm. that make sense? So exegesis is pulling out what the text is actually saying. Eisegesis is reading into the text what I want it to say. And we're going to actually talk about that in a little bit. And probably everybody's heard the term exegetical preaching. Yeah. Which is where that that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I I should hope so at least. So yeah. When you're looking at that, so we're looking at um, letting the text speak rather than reading into the text. We also, uh, especially from our theological camp, especially here at Olive Baptist, we consider the historical, the grammatical, and the cultural nature of the passage that we are studying or that is being studied in order to understand what the original writers meant to say. Um, I love to use this example, Travis, is people who may not understand that. Let me break it down even even to an easier standpoint is, let's just say I write a love letter to my wife, mm-hmm. all right? I write a love letter to my wife, I address it to my wife, and I address it to her within our first year of marriage. Now that letter is gonna look a lot different 12 years from now, yeah. right? It's written to who? It's written to my wife. What is the occasion I'm writing it? On our first year anniversary. The occasion in what I'm writing it is because I'm probably talking about how much I love her and how the first year of marriage, this and this and this. So we see kind of the context of why I'm writing this. We see the original author and we see the intended recipient. So now let's just say, Travis, my, I was overseas when I sent this to her. Let's just say the address got lost and it ended up at your mailbox. Hmm. And you open up this love letter you're like, to Diane on her first year, I'm not Diane. (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't love this guy. What is he talking about? I never did this with you. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, you know, you or you'll take it the other way. I am Diane. Yes. Yes. I I that is me. I don't know who this other weirdo guy is that's writing me, but okay, this is interesting that he's writing me. I don't know who this is. And so now I'm injecting myself into that love letter when I was never the intended recipient. Hmm. The same way the Bible was written. We have to understand that it was written on a specific occasion, a purpose, the writer, the author, and the intended or the original audience. Mm. And what we tend, what Christians tend to do is forget all of those rules that kind of lay the framework. And instead, uh, a beautiful example, I'm sure, unless you've been living under a rock, is I think it's Matt Chandler who's talking about David and Goliath. And he says, you're not David. Mm-hmm. You're not slaying the Goliaths in your life. Is people would inject themselves. Yes, no, that is dealing in that I am, in fact, David, slaying the giants in my life of this and that. No, that's injecting yourself into Scripture and not approaching Scripture the way that it needs to be approached. Yeah. Does that make sense so yep. far? Okay. 
So instead of using the terms, because some people may have gotten mixed up with the terms normative and descriptive, um, I'm just going to change out the words slightly. Well, descriptive I'm going to keep, but then I'm going to say descriptive or prescriptive. So each, every verse in the Bible, every book in the Bible, everything falls within one of these two categories, mm-hmm. right? Descriptive meaning uh, is uh, the text that is describing what is happening without giving a command or instructing us on how to behave. So if you look at it, most of Exodus is in fact descriptive, right? It's just talking about what happened. However, there are prescriptive texts within the book of Exodus. So I can't just blanket saying, no, all of Exodus is just describing. It's not telling us what to do. So prescriptive texts are instructive. So descriptive texts simply describe what is happening, right? Like a historical or like a story, but prescriptive texts are instructing. They're talking to us about what it is that we should follow. And so that's typically commands of what to do or not to do. And in Exodus, as you guys all know, we have the 10 commandments, which falls within the prescriptive category because they prescribe certain behaviors. That makes sense. So when you're approaching the scriptures, you, you look at this and if you see something that's just outlandish, right? Or that just doesn't make sense anymore. Ask yourself, is this just describing something that happened or is this prescribing something that we are to do? And we see that in the Old Testament and we see that a lot in the New Testament. We also see Jesus kind of doing away with what was prescriptive in certain elements of the Old Testament and bringing it in and basically re-sending a prescription. So I like to say it like this, like think prescription. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when you hear the word prescription, you think of what? A doctor. Yeah. yeah. So think about it that way. Think about that the Bible is prescribing, writing out a prescription for you. Okay, Travis, I need you to you know, go into this book of the Bible and understand that this is what's applying to you. So the question was, is how do we discern what's normative and descriptive? Or let me rephrase that. What is descriptive and prescriptive and how can we tell what applies us today? So we've got to be able to understand Uh, on a basic level, on a basic sense, the genre of each book of the Bible, Mm. right? And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit in the podcast, is the different genres, because the Bible is written and books have different genres. And how I approach that genre, I've got to understand the genre of that book. For instance, let's just say you like sci-fi, don't you, Travis? I love sci-fi. I love sci-fi too. So imagine if I give you a book on... Uh, I think one of my favorite sci-fi books is Starship Troopers. Okay. All right. If you've ever read that one, incredible book. Yeah. Let me just say, I give you that and I say, hey, this is a historical narrative. (laughs) Okay. And you're approaching, (laughs) exactly. You're approaching a sci-fi fake book, not real, from, and trying to read that, no, this is historical. Hmm. You see the problem you're going to run into. You're going to be like, well, that hasn't happened. This isn't a thing. I don't see these super moon boots happening, you know, this and that. There's no way that that is... Contextualist doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like anything. I've, so. I've approached it from the complete wrong perspective. You cannot yeah. do that. The same way we approach scripture. I cannot approach a certain book of the Bible and assume that it is poetic in nature when it's not a poetic genre. Mm-hmm. Or I can't as- approach a poetic book and assume that it's historical narrative in genre. Yep. Does that make sense? So yep. We can apply that in the literary sense within our modern world, but for some reason, Christians have a hard time doing that within Scripture. So, um, for instance, uh, most of the book of Acts, right? Acts is very descriptive. Luke was a, uh, a physician who kind of documented this off of firsthand accounts, and he talks about that as he's writing to Theophilus. Uh, now, what we do see, Acts is mostly descriptive. It is a historical book talking especially about, like, the first century church and how the church came about. There are... 
uh, historical references in that, and we're going to cover that in a little bit. But then you also have New Testament epistles, uh, mainly written by the Apostle Paul, which is absolutely prescriptive in certain elements. Hmm. And so we need to understand that. Okay, this is from a historical perspective. So history just telling a story. It's a narrative. If I understand that the epistles are prescriptive in nature, I need to know that as I'm entering into this, there is probably, no, definitely stuff that is going to be applicable to me. Yes. But at the same time, though, there is still stuff, too, that is specific to the people group. That For instance, first century church and, and the people group there. Yeah. yeah. Colossians 4. So we're going to be finishing up uh, at Crossroads, Colossians chapter 4 tonight. And at the end of Colossians 4, if you look at this, it is not prescriptive in nature. But what you do see is descriptions of what it is and how Paul's ministry setup was happening at that time as he's giving his final greetings. And he's talking about all these other people. I can't sit there in the 21st century and be like, I am Titius. No, I am Onesimus. Mm-hmm. That's not. That's not. So we made. he made a sh- subtle shift because if you look at 1 through 3, He's describing everything for new Christian living. But then when we hit chapter 4, there's a little bit that's still prescriptive, but then immediately there's a shift change that happens from prescriptive to he's just describing history. Yep. He's just going over like uh, administration stuff, if you will. Yeah. And if you're not careful, you're not going to recognize that, and then you're going to be able to take stuff out of context. So one thing I want to talk about, and this is uh, – I think you and I are going to have a fun talk about this, especially in regards to social mediaology is what I call it. Uh, there's an interpretation theory that drives me insane. Mm-hmm. And now that you guys are listening to this, you're not going to be ignorant to this any longer. Um, so this theory first came around in 1965. It wasn't any new theory. This has been around for a long time. But this guy, Paul Ricoeur, really kind of brought it into the literary genre of things, if you will. Uh, and honestly, we did a podcast not too long ago about deconstructionism. It's very closely assimilated uh, with deconstructionism in regards to the literary context. And so what is the interpretation theory? So what this theory is suggesting is that the text is independent of the intention of the author, meaning the text means whatever it says, not what the author intended. So uh, uh, the saying is, is talk is writ, meaning like, what I'm talking is written down. Uh, Whatever is said is what is said. And what this theory is saying is that the text, what the author wrote, is independent of what the author intended it to be. Just let that process for a second. The text means whatever it says, not what the author intended. What does that sound a lot like to you, Travis? That sounds a lot like... I don't even know what that sounds like to me. It just sounds wrong. Like Relativism it, is really yeah, where I'm getting at yeah. with that. It's, what, hey, what's true for you, Travis? Okay, cool. Yeah. That's true for you. Good for you. That's not true for me. Yeah. Oh, th- that's what he said there? Well, that's good. That's not, that's not what I think it says, so that's not what it says. Yes. So immediately you see a problem with that. I have a huge problem with, with in interpretation uh, of Scripture that way. And, and I think the biggest one is, okay, have you ever read Lord of the Rings? Uh, yeah, of course. Okay, cool. Best movies too, actually. All right. They better not ever remake those. Okay. But let's say that you read Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And you were like, oh, the main character of the Lord of the Rings is Gimli. <laughs> it's the dwarf. <laughs> He's the main character of the Lord of the Rings. And you say that because you put yourself in Gimli's shoes. So the problem with interpreting scripture this way is it makes the people in scripture the main character. Mm. And that's where my problem comes in is that scripture is not about – the characters and the people in the Bible. It is the story of God and Jesus. Yes. 
and you cannot put your place self in the place of that main character. Yes. So you have to read it with the main character in mind, and yes. it's the character that lives throughout the entirety of Scripture uh, is God and Jesus. And when you start doing interpretational renderings of Scripture, you're putting yourself as the main character instead of God as the main character. And that's my problem with interpretational Scripture reading. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, that brings up the whole point, too, that everything in the Old and the New Testament is pointing to one Mm-hmm. One figure, yes. Jesus. Everything, yes. every book of the Bible. I don't care what genre it is. It is pointing to Christ, yes. the Messiah, God's redemptive plan. So yeah, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and so within this theory, the interpretation theory, that is like one of the the few problems that it is. Now let me let yeah. me get into the next thing that this also suggests is that <clears throat> literary genres, meaning, and we're going to get into these in a little bit. Literary genres uh, do more than classify texts; they actually give a code that shapes the way a reader will interpret the text. So this is a lot of like what you've seen with the movie Da Vinci Code and all this other yes. stuff. There's some hidden code in this, and there's numbers theories and everything else where people are. Um, looking for a secret hidden meaning behind the text, behind this. Like, we may not have had this right, Travis. After all these thousands of years, we may not have this right. So then the next problem with this, there's two more with this interpretation theory. Another thing that they say is once the texts have been written, the meaning is no longer determined by the understanding of the original audience who had those texts written to them. So think about that. So then that means... Uh, when Moses in the book of Deuteronomy was giving the recap of what had happened to their ancestors and everything else, that really wasn't applying to the Israelites. That's applying to Western Americans living in the state of Florida. Yeah. Problem. Hello. Big red flag here. Huge. That's not okay. And so it no longer applies to them. And each subsequent audience throughout the years and wherever it is that you're living at that time may now read its own situation into the text. Mm -hmm. So people in America understand this text this way, and it's really talking about Americans, but people in uh, Australia know it's really talking to the Australians, and it's taking and giving no credence to the original author and the original audience. It's just, we're just going to play by our own rules. Forget that, dude. Uh, Big issues. I mean, and and we're going to get into where I see this practically happening a lot. Um, now, the last one within this interpretation theory, once the text is written, the sense of why it was written and to whom it was written is no longer valid. The meaning is freed from the limits set by the author, opening up to many new meanings and interpretations. Mm-hmm. And we see that happening all the time. Everywhere. Where you see, like, the biggest one that I see happening, especially with here in America, is the verse in Chronicles, where it's like, if my people who are called by my name will oh. humble themselves and pray... That is not a political verse, that America is God's chosen people, and that if we will only— Now, granted, is there principles within that verse that we as Americans can take? Yeah, if we humble ourselves as a people of Christ, as the church universal, and humble our ways and turn from our wicked ways, one, we should be doing that. Uh, But two, uh, that is just always the right way in standing. It doesn't mean that because whoever I voted for didn't get in, that now— Oh, we're going against God. And now yes. second Quran, you know, oh, and that's a big uh, verse. I see just people putting on blast. And there's going to be one very relevant one that I saw go viral this past Easter that I'm going to talk about here in a second with Ooh, you okay. too. Okay. All right. So the next problem that we see when people aren't using a proper hermeneutic is the proof text message. And so this mm. typically happens from a pastoral 
preaching or teaching point of view, but I also see this happening a ton, Travis, in social media. So what is a proof text message? Basically what it is, it's the way in which someone approaches scripture. Instead of someone approaching scripture where I understand certain basic elements of uh, the understanding interpretation of scripture, I'm looking for something that's going to meet my narrative that I want to talk about, right? So that's essentially what we're talking about here. So what it is, is I'm typically, I'm looking for a biblical theme, maybe a principle that's sought after by a person or a pastor for a scriptural text that supports my topical theme or the pastoral position that I'm trying to get to the end state with, Yeah. right? Uh, another way is people are looking at short, witty, pop texts, if you will, uh, epigrammatic, which basically means concise, clever, and amusing, using several key words within the confines of the subject that I am choosing, right, to give me the meaning rather than what the actual meaning of that word is. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm making scripture say what I want it to say. I'm making scripture support what I want it to say. Perfect case in point, and I see this all the time. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yes. What's the context behind Philippians? Who's writing it? <sighs> Who's writing Philippians? Paul's writing Paul's writing it. Right? Yeah. In prison. Yes. He's imprisoned again. Yes. And he's talking, if you read in the context of that verse, he's talking that uh, as I'm in these chains, as I'm in this on behalf of the gospel, it doesn't matter where I'm at. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I can do all things for the good of the gospel, for the spread of the Great Commission through Christ as he gives me strength. Yes. That's the context. Yes. Travis, this is not me talking about I'm going to be able to get this paper done for school because I can do all things through Christ. Or you know what? I'm going to hit that home run. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives no. me strength. That's a beautiful case point in which I have a problem set and I'm trying to find scripture to apply to my problem. Yes. Granted. There are other scripture passages that would be better well-suited for that specific instance. Yes. Right? I'm not saying uh, that I can't apply Philippians 4.13 in certain elements of my life, but I have to understand the purpose behind why Paul wrote that, that he wrote this in prison, that he wrote this to the church in Philippi. Because if I don't know that he wrote this in prison, I'm not able to frame my mind around maybe what he's going through at that time. Yeah. Right? And so... We see this happen a lot, uh, especially the witty, short little sayings. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening with this, Travis, is when you seek after text in Scripture to support what you're wanting it to support, instead of allowing Scripture to speak for itself, which is what you're supposed to do. So when I'm preparing a sermon, granted, I don't, I, I have done topical sermons in the past, uh, but typically what I will do is, let's just say I'm speaking on anxiety. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I won't find something that I think is directly addressing anxiety, but really what the undertone of the problem or issue is with anxiety is understanding your place in this world and understanding your value and who you are in Christ. So I would approach uh, a topical series on anxiety, for instance, uh, by seeking out uh, prescriptions of Christian living, prescriptions uh, that <clears throat> maybe Paul or maybe Christ had even written uh, towards individuals who are going through hard times. You know, don't be shocked when various trials and tribulations occur to you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's that's great. Instead, what tends to happen, I want to talk about anxiety. And I pull some obscure reference from the Bible somewhere that has absolutely nothing to do yes. with dealing with anxiety, but it sounds good. And typically you'll see that because I've always seen that where it's like, I've literally never heard that before. 
that doesn't sound like anything else that Scripture is kind of attested to. Are, are you sure that's even in there? Because what happens is people allegorize the text, uh, like Aesop's fables, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, the, the way that I have seen this being done is that the five loaves of bread that Jesus did in the parables wasn't really five loaves of bread and four fish or whatever else. Instead, that was representing the five sins that man has in their life according to the seven deadly sins that we have. And so we must continue to break (laughs) these breads and we must continue to seek after crushing the... I mean, it's just ridiculous. And that's an absurd example, but there's more, I guess you could say, subtle problems with that. So that's allegorizing. Then spiritualizing. (laughs) Spiritualizing is making something say or seem more spiritual than what it really is. Yes. So, for example, here's the common thing that I saw. Did you see the thing go almost completely viral? And I saw people getting this tattooed on themselves. Judas 8-2. Yes. Yeah, I saw that this, this past Easter a lot. I At first I saw that and I was like, Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm. What is so significant? And I saw. And if you're listening to this and it just wrecked you, I'm not bashing you right now. Yeah. If you have that tattooed on you, don't feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. But no. I mean, uh, I want to. I want to make sure I caveat this with. Yeah. I believe that that has helped individuals possibly reframe their mind on things, and I think it can be spiritually beneficial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you're missing oh, yeah. a lar- the grand scheme of what happened. If you're so concerned that Judas ate and Jesus knew, here, here's my first thing, Travis, and I want to hear your take on that. He's Jesus. Yeah. Of course Jesus knew. Jesus knew when he entered at the age of the temple in 12 when his parents got angry at him. He's known this. If he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and if Jesus was the deity of Christ, 100% man and 100% God, mm-hmm. pretty sure he knew about Judas when he asked Judas to join him. Oh, yeah. 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 And and there's no, like, there's no moment there where Jesus was unsure of who Judas was. No. Like, like even Old Testament scripture tells us that, that he looks at the, the inner workings of man. He looks at the heart, and he can see the whole time what Judas is concerned with and where, where Judas is headed. Like, there's no surprise there. It's not like Jesus was surprised when Judas came up and kissed him on the cheek. So, I mean, yeah, totally. It's just, it, it, it um, <laughs> it's just funny though, when we, we see this and we're like, man, just think about that. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus did this, but Judas ate too. Jesus allowed Judas to eat. Yeah. Because if we understand scriptures, we understand the purpose of Judas. There are men and women made for honorable and dishonorable use. Judas was made for dishonorable use through honorable means, though. Mm -hmm. Think about that, because what Judas did allowed the redemptive plan of Christ from Genesis 3.15 to come to fruition through this. And of course, Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this. This isn't some epiphany of like, Jesus like, I know what Jesus is about to do, but I'm allowed. I'm gonna let him eat as well. This isn't some profound thought because if you think about this, um, Jesus knew all the other sins that was going on, mm-hmm. right? And, and you see this alluded to all the time in the Gospels, where 
Jesus, knowing what their hearts and minds were thinking, addressed the issues in which they were thinking. So that kind of gives you an idea. So Peter, uh, there's a section where Peter says, like, look, I'm not I'm not going to let you go through this alone. Like, I, I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus straight out comes out and says, oh, before the sun rises, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Absolutely. And he knew. He knew right then. And it was very precise and exact of, I know what you're going to do. You're sitting here telling me I don't, but I know exactly what you're going to do. And there's even Old Testament verses, too, that allude to the fact. There's Mm -hmm. verses in Psalms and Zechariah that is alluding to the fact that this is going to be happening, that Judas will betray Jesus. But at the same time, instead of us focusing on Judas eating, too, and how great of a person Jesus is that allowed him to eat, how about we look at the nature and the attributes of Christ as Mm -hmm. opposed to focusing on the man who's not the— like you even said it earlier, what's the, who's the main subject of the entire scriptures? Yeah. Jesus. So why am I now focusing, especially in the Last Supper, I'm taking it away from Jesus, who's doing incredible things now where he's basically eliminating Passover, that this is the new. The Lord's Supper is the new Passover. Christ is the new spotless lamb. Mm-hmm. And the attribute that I see so much that we miss out on uh, in the upper room is think about the humility Christ had. Not just humility and washing feet. That was nothing new for him. Mm-hmm. Not the humility that he allowed Judas to eat. The humility of Christ knowing what was about to happen to his person, knowing that Christ was about to go through the worst death, the worst torture. And you see that in the Mount of Olives when Jesus prays. And he's like, let this cup pass from me if it you will. But he humbled himself unto death. Hebrews talks about that. So the focus that we should be focusing isn't Judas eating too. How about it's Jesus humbled himself? Yeah. How about that seems to be a bit more aligned with scripture because we see these piffy sayings, Travis, and it, you don't have to look far to see these. Do you remember several years back, the God is love thing? Refresh my memory. So, Nothing's popping so up. several years back, like, like I'd say five to 10 years ago, uh, there was a there were a series of pastors who just preached God is love, and that's cool. That's scriptural, but they focused so much on the God is love part ah. that they just left out every other attribute of who God was. Yeah, <laughs> and then it just caught on like wildfire, and every Dude. every pastor that you came across was preaching a God is love message, and it just started leaving out like other attributes of God, like God is love, but God is also justice. God is also judgment. So. Once you get to that point, though, it's just like a snowball effect. I don't like that Jesus. I want my Jesus, Travis. Yeah. Give me the love Jesus. And all of a sudden, you have a guy who's done several educational videos writing a book saying, like, oh, there is no hell because God is love and, and there's no justice. There's no judgment. There's no hell. Like, nobody goes to hell. And it's like, okay, okay, that's unscriptural. Or, like, that's or not what, true. Or what I've heard, too, out of that. This is what I've heard a lot, too, is that <laughs> I feel like. Christians tend to do this as like an easier pill to swallow is that hell isn't eternal damnation and burning and gnashing oh, of yeah. teeth with it. Hell is just separation from God. Yeah. It's like, nope. It doesn't mean <laughs> that, you know, it's like, no, God is, if God is everywhere, which he is, yeah. God is there ensuring that justice is being had yeah. in Hades. So we see here, guys, with the proof text message, you can allegorize, spiritualize, or do some other quick adjustment to some kind of text uh, to seek or meet the needs of the seeker to serve the purpose that I have had. And I think Judas 8-2 is a beautiful example 
of that because oh, yeah. in ways I can see how that could be helpful. And if, if you're sitting here listening and you're just fuming at the mouth right now because that just opened your eyes, I mean, I'm glad that that was used to help open your eyes. And I'm not saying that it couldn't, but you cannot do that. You've got to apply this everywhere. If I do that with that portion of scripture, where do I stop mm-hmm. and start focusing on Christ, who all of scripture is pointing to? I mean, that's the problem, Travis, is you see these things, you see these people posting these things, and it's like, okay, um, what, what does that have to do with Christ? Um, or I saw another thing. I'm not going to name the names of whoever it is, and I think the intention behind the thought I, I do believe that these people are truly Bible-fearing, loving, believing Christians, and I think they're trying to do the right thing. But I think what ends up happening is that we take too much liberty when it comes to Scripture. Yeah. And so this individual is writing about the women in the New Testament and how, you know, did you see the dimples? Did you see this in the legs of this individual and that? And basically talking about the empowerment of women, I'm thinking— well, no, you would never see the dimples of a woman's leg because this is first century Palestine and they would not be wearing shorts. Yeah. They would not be wearing any of that. So now what I've done is I've failed to contextualize the scripture text and I have now uh, pulled out and put in the modern understanding of what a woman looks like and is injecting that into first century Palestine by assuming that the woman uh, in the first century church or whatever else uh, were dealing with those same issues, which probably they were. You just would not see it. Uh, you know, because I'm now not thinking through the lens of the original intended audience and the writer in the time in which it was written, right? So, so let's say, let's okay. say, like, let's say I'm I'm looking at scripture. Like, what is? How should I approach it? Like, if I'm going to do like correct hermeneutics, mm. like, how should we approach this? And how should we seek the meaning of a passage? There's seven steps um, that is kind of the accepted as a whole way to approach scripture. So the first one is I need to understand the general context of the scripture passage or the book. Go big book first, right? So I need to understand the context of the book of Genesis before I focus in and look at the creation account. Okay. What is the point of Genesis? Then I need to look at the literary context of it. Okay. Is Genesis, what kind of a book of the Bible is Genesis? Uh, Is it poetic? Is it this and this? All right. So once I've got the literary context, then I need to look at the lexical grammatical context, the language in the words used to describe or convey the meaning uh, that the author uh, was trying to convey. And with that too, I need to know who the author was. Mm-hmm. Right? This is also within the general context. I need to know the original intended audience. I also need to know when it was written. Right. And kind of what I like to see, too, is what was social politically going on at that time? Mm. For instance, when Paul's writing in Philippians, who was in power? Was he in a Roman jail? Who were the Romans like? Were they good people? Were they bad people? How were their prison systems? What did they believe? Exactly. So that goes within the general context that I mean, it's extensive to help me really frame my mind. Otherwise, I'm just going to inject Ethan Jago's personal opinion from 2021 into this. Mm -hmm. So after that, then I have to understand the cultural context, which kind of bleeds into the government, the social, political, the um, what was first century Palestine like if I'm looking at the New Testament, which is when all of this was written. Uh, What area of this was being written? So the book of Colossians, where was that at physically and geographically located? Phraseology. Like Mm. uh, Jesus mentions at one point going through the eye of a needle and you can very much like 
take that just literally as it is and be like, oh, like the eye of a needle is like super small because I'm putting a thread through it. And then you find out, oh, the eye of a needle, the eye of the needle is actually a place within the wall of Jerusalem where camels had to bend down and actually crawl through. And it was a defensive thing. But you would never know that unless you looked into the cultural context of the phrase. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful example, dude. Yeah. Because you read that and you're like, Dude, I thread thread through needles all the time. That's not really that tough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, camel, I don't know what you're talking about that. <clears throat> well, the camels of your life, Travis. What are the camels? <laughs> oh, in your... Anyway, moving on. <laughs> all right, so then we get the biblical context. How does that book fit within the grand scheme of Scripture? And if mm-hmm. I understand that everything is pointing to Christ, I need to understand the biblical context of why it is where it is. And then the sixth step is the theological context. Um, w- what is kind of the purpose of the writing? And the great thing about Paul is he just upfront typically talks to you, the church that he's writing to in his epistles. This is what I'm talking about. This is what we're going over. Uh, and the other thing is too, with all of this, we have 2000 years of church history uh, with all of our former uh, early church fathers and everything else where they, men and women have dedicated their lives. And I can now look back on this and figure out a lot of this. A lot of this has been done. I just have to do the due diligence. And then the last step Travis, the last step in interpreting scripture is application to my life. Mm-hmm. Notice application isn't step one, which is typically what people do is I just want to open the Bible and immediately get something that talks to me and be like, yeah, that makes me feel good. Application is dead last. So seven steps is I need to understand the general context, the literary context, the lexical grammatical context, the cultural context, biblical context, theological context, and then I arrive at application. And a word that I said a lot in those seven steps is context. context. I cannot stress that enough. That is so key. That is why exegesis is important and not eisegesis. So now I'm going to throw it back to you. Let's real quickly go over in case people are thinking, okay, you're talking about the general and the literary context. Travis and I are about to do breakdown within the next, I think we can get this done like five minutes tops, the entire Bible, the context and what happened within certain realms of the books of the Bible to give you that general, and we can at least give you the literary context. Yep. Travis, so, I'm going to have you take the Old Testament. So there are 66 books of the Bible overall, Yep. and we'll just break them down. Old Testament, there are 39 books. Uh, you have the first five books, which are typically called the Pentateuch, mm-hmm. uh, and they're the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, uh, often referred to as the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. So real quick, so we know the author now, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, we know what they were referred to, yep. right? What about the time? When was it written? So we're looking at around 1400 BC. Okay, so immediately, boom, we've got that context. Yep. Okay, keep yep. going. Perfect. I like this. Uh, the first book is Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. It's the creation, man, sin, redemption, God's nation. Uh, the second book, you have Exodus, and most of us know Exodus uh, from <laughs> Bible school. Uh, so God delivers his people from Egypt. That's the whole story of Moses, Ramses, all that stuff. Uh, Leviticus, you have atonement, holiness, and worship through sacrifice and purification. Uh, numbers, God's people continually disobey and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Deuteronomy, Moses' great discourse to prepare Israel to enter the promised land. So who were these five books written to? I think it makes it pretty clear. Yeah, they're written to the Hebrew people. Yep. Yep. All right, let's go. That's first five. What's next? Cool. And then you have the next 12 books, which are the historical books. So these were written between 1400 and 450 BC. It counts backwards. Just so here's, kind of here's a great thing, that. too. So when we look at, yeah, BC just throws me for a loop, dude. So when you look at this, too, what should be going on in your mind is what was happening right around 450 BC, 
right? Who was yep. in charge? Who was going over uh, what Roman generals or Macedonian generals? You know, and so that should be really helping you frame your mind of instead of just looking at what's happening only here in Israel, what is happening at this point in time in the world? Okay, keep going. I like this. So you yep. ended with written between when? 1400 and 450 B.C. Uh, and it describes God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel, uh, the nation of the Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, and we're looking at the books of Joshua all the way to Esther. Perfect. So from Joshua to Esther, we're looking at, at those books. And so the history books, what does the historical books do for us in the Old Testament for the rest of the Bible? It just sets the stage. It sets the stage historically for how God has dealt with his people. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love this. Keep going. Cool. And then you have the poetry, uh, which is the five books. Uh and the five books following are poetic. So they're describing God's greatness and his dealings with men in poetry mm. and song. Uh, you have Job, which is the suffering and loyal trust of a man who loved God. Uh, you have Psalms, which is the songs of praise and instruction. We all know Psalms. Uh, most of us know that David wrote a lot of Psalms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Proverbs, which is God's practical wisdom for daily life. Uh, Ecclesiastes, the emptiness of an earthly life without God. That's hmm. very important. Like a lot of people like talk about Ecclesiastes as like just a book of sorrow. Uh, <laughs> but it's the emptiness of an earthly life without God, which is important for understanding and context. Absolutely. Then you have Song of Solomon, which is a celebration of marital joy. And we, we know the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's about <laughs> your teeth being white like sheep and all that jazz. <clears throat> so, yeah. And then you have the major prophets which are five books. Uh, A prophet was a person commissioned by God to deliver his message to men. So these books are called major prophets because they're generally, they generally are longer than the writings of the minor prophets. Mm. Major prophets were written between 750 and 550 BC. Uh, You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have your minor prophets, which are 12 books written between 840 and 400. They're usually shorter. So you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay. And then you break into the New Testament, which you're going to take. Okay, so that's beautiful because now those of you listening, you you have immediately now been given the context. You've been given the cultural context. Well, you'd have to look up the cultural context, but you have the general context. Mm -hmm. uh, You have the literary context. And then you also have the biblical context where it falls within the scriptures and the why behind that. Yep. And I love those summarizations you gave on these uh, because that just really helps frame the minds. And if that right there, I mean, we've knocked out a few of those seven steps to really help us to be able to approach scripture in a biblical, godly way. So that way I'm giving due yep. diligence to scripture and not screwing it up. All right. So now <clears throat> we've got, you know, you did the 39 of the Old Testament. Now we got 27 of the New Testament. And the New Testament is essentially the revealing of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And now we see the person, the nature, and the work of Christ actually coming into fruition. We see his life playing out. We see the plan of salvation coming out and the beginning of instruction for the new church and Christianity as a new religion. So we have the first five books, typical, well, not the first five books, but we have history. We have five books, and the Gospels are the first four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew is about the life of Christ written specifically for Jews, revealing Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah. The book of Mark 
is, again, the life of Christ revealing Jesus as the obedient servant of God. So now we are getting more of a theological context, getting into the attributes of God and as Christ, obedient servant of God written especially to who? The Roman world. So we see now who this is written towards. Matthew is towards the Jews. Mark was written towards the Romans. Luke, the life of Christ revealing Jesus as the perfect man, emphasizing his humanity written by Luke, a Greek to the Greek world. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, the gospel, we have John, the life of Christ revealing Jesus as the son of God, stressing his deity, which is extremely evangelistic. So then, then we move into the history of the early church, which is Acts. Acts just describes how the church spread, the first church, uh, and uh, it was called originally Acts of the Holy Spirit, and then it kind of moved to Acts of the Apostles. Anyway, it was written as an evangelistic tool. So then that's just the first uh, historical five books, if you will. And then we move into the letters or the epistles. So these were written specifically to individuals, to churches, uh, or some were just written to believers in general. And these letters deal with every aspect of Christian faith and responsibility. So Paul has written 13. Uh, he wrote Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So those are the letters or epistles written to specific people, churches, uh, or believers as a whole. Then we have the general letters, right? General letters. Eight books of are found in this. And that is Hebrews through 3rd John, or excuse me, Hebrews through Jude. Uh, and so these are just general letters for Christian behavior, Christian living, uh, and stuff like that. And then lastly, we have one prophetic book. Uh, the last book of the New Testament is telling us about future events, the return of Christ, the reign of Jesus Christ, the glory of him, and the future state of believers and unbelievers. This book is called Revelation. Yep. So what Travis and I just did is giving you an extremely condensed, short crash course of biblical hermeneutics uh, and understanding how we can approach Scripture. So to recap here, how can we discern what's normative and descriptive in Scripture, and how can we tell what applies to us today? Well, one, finding out, is it prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah. If it is something that I've landed on that I believe it is prescriptive, meaning that I need to follow this, then I need to follow those seven steps to figure out exactly what is prescriptive to me and what was prescriptive uh, or what was more of a descriptive time as well. And yeah. there are issues in which people can make the case for both. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, you want to do justice to the text. Yes. If this is the inspired word of God. The last thing that I want to do is somehow inject Ethan's opinion or Travis's opinion into mm. this and potentially miss out on something greater that God has for me or lead others astray. Yeah. Uh, so before I post something or before I reshare a verse or something, I look at the verse that someone's posting and I read what they're saying this is. And then if I already don't know it automatically in my head, then I go and search out to see, okay, is that really what that is? Yeah. Um, so this was a fun episode. It I was. Think, Travis. It was a long episode, but it was a really fun episode. Yeah. It, this was not the intention to go this long, but I think we kind of had to do that. Yeah. And yeah, maybe talk about Mighty Ducks at the beginning didn't uh, didn't help our time at all. <laughs> I think it uh, I think it helped us relax into the topic, which is really nice. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna go with that. Well, cool. Well, Ethan, thank you, and thank you guys for listening. Uh, you've been listening to the Crossroads podcast here at Olive Baptist Church. Crossroads is the premier young adult ministry in the city of Pensacola. We hope you'll follow the Instagram where you can also ask your questions, uh, and we hope that you will stay tuned and listen next time. Thanks for joining us for the Crossroads podcast.